Thank you for joining us for this podcast from College Church of the Nazarene, University Avenue. The following was recorded live on location in Bourbonnais, Illinois. Well, we want to welcome our children this summer. We've got family worship first through sixth grade, and so you get a shout out. Hi, kids. So we welcome you and your uh, high daughter and niece. And, uh, you know, the extra chatter and the wiggles, because that's just kids being the way that God made them, right? Oh, that was an awfully silent response, right? That's just how kids are. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm talking about kids. First through sixth graders, Jesse. So we all know that life is messy and complicated, right? We're going to bump into people and problems and situations that we would rather not face. And things will come up, swell up threatening to overwhelm us. And we have unavoidable consequences, perhaps, because we said or did something rash or reckless. And we all know that life is messy and complicated. But it is a really good thing, right, that that stuff doesn't appear in the Bible, right? (laughs) It's neatly packaged and well-trimmed, and these stories are always buttoned up, and there's nothing unresolved, no unease, no problems or messiness here, right? Because what would we do then? And so this morning, I want to ask you something that I don't usually just outright ask people. I'm not trying to riff on Pastor Mark, sorry, just to be clear. But I want to ask you this because it's serious. Would you just in this time together, in this sacred space, just choose to sit in the tension for this moment, in the messiness of this scripture? Because I really believe that God might have something important to say to us. Our story today comes from Genesis 21. It's in the middle of some family drama, and the long-awaited promised son Isaac has been born, and we pick up our story in Genesis 21.8. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was laughing. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, will be counted. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. And early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes and then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there and began to sob. So this desperate mother with no home and no help traveling with her teenage son resigns them to dying in the desert. And I think it's a good question for us to ask, how did we end up here? And why is this story even here? And what are we to do with it? Because if we were to wind back the story of Hagar when she first enters the scene, we would see her come on stage in the background with a whole host of unnamed characters in Egypt. So Abraham and Sarah 
Now, I know because we have people who know stuff in here. I know that they get a name change in the middle of the story from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, but that's too much for my brain to handle this morning, and that's another sermon. So, Abraham and Sarah are getting ready to enter Egypt as refugees in an economic and agricultural crisis. They are essentially Bedouin shepherds who have to find food and a place to graze their flocks, and so they ask for permission to enter Egypt but they're vulnerable as foreigners. And so Abraham knows that Sarah is beautiful. And so he asks her to tell everyone that they meet that they are brother and sister and to leave out the husband and wife detail. It's technically true they are half brother and sister, but it's not the whole truth. And so things go as Pharaoh expects. Pharaoh, things go as Abraham expects. Pharaoh pays Abraham a dowry to take Sarah as one of his wives, and Abraham is made a very wealthy man, flocks and gold and servants. And in the middle of this dowry paid to Abraham is a young slave girl who would be called Hagar. But when a plague rocks Pharaoh's household, Abraham and Sarah's deception is unveiled. He discovers that they are in fact husband and wife and Pharaoh expels from Egypt everyone connected to Abraham and his household, including all of the slaves and this girl named Hagar. Now this whole time, Abraham is operating under the assumption that he has God's blessing and the promise of a son and a future and a land. And, but Sarah is barren and she is unable to conceive. And so no matter, no matter what they try, she can't have a child. And so along the way, Sarah does what any wealthy woman in that time would do. And she takes her handmaid in Hagar and gives her to her husband as a surrogate. So any child born to Hagar is not Hagar's child, but is Sarah's child and Sarah's heir. So Hagar, a slave girl, has no right and claim to her own body or even her own children. But Sarah hopes for this child so that she can participate in the blessing of Abraham and get her dignity back among the people. But when Hagar becomes pregnant, Sarah accuses her of looking down on her. Literally, the words are lowered in her esteem because Hagar is gifted a child and Sarah is not. Hagar is pregnant and Sarah can't. And so Sarah comes to Abraham and says, look, I am looked down on by my slave and it is all your fault, so do something about it. And Abraham shrugs it off. But what I think is interesting, what we ought to notice in the story is that the story never shows us that Hagar did anything at all. We can choose to believe Sarah, but the, the narrator doesn't show us anything. All we see is Abraham shrugging off this domestic dispute and letting Sarah do whatever she wants. What we hear is Sarah accusing Hagar, which she uses as a justification to violently abuse Hagar, so much so that pregnant Hagar flees off into the wilderness. And apparently she fled in such a hurry with such haste that she didn't have any provisions, didn't have any plan, no supplies, nowhere to go. But where could she go? I mean, she is a runaway slave. She is a foreign prize. She has nowhere to go. And she probably wouldn't find any sympathy 
any protection, any provision, anywhere. But in the middle of the wilderness, the Lord finds Hagar. The angel of the Lord appears and says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar explains her misery. She's told to go back and submit to her, to her mistress, but she's promised that her son too will be blessed and she will be the mother of nations. And then she does something that is truly remarkable. Hagar is the only woman in the entire Bible who is directly given this kind of promise. And she is the only person in the Bible who gives God a name. God will show up and say, I am Lord of hosts. I am redeemer. I am promiser, promise keeper. But Hagar is the only one who says, you are. She says, you are El Roy, the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And so Hagar has this revelation that this God sees her troubles, this God hears her prayers, this God knows her sorrows, and suddenly she is lifted up from being the lowly tool of family planning to being an honored and beloved woman that God sees. But can we pause and just for a moment acknowledge how messy this story is getting? I mean, Abraham, our hero, the father of the faith, the one of whom it is said that he believed God and it was credited to, righteous, to him as righteousness, this Abraham is a coward when it comes to domestic affairs. Right? He does not want to settle the dispute between Sarah, and so he just gives her permission to do as she pleases, including abusing Hagar. And that is not the model of how we ought to be as husbands and fathers, right? Right? And what is God doing sending Hagar back home to an abusive situation? I mean, who today would just tell someone just to go back and live with your abusive spouse? It'll be all right. No, we don't do that. We, we tell them, get out now and let me help you because there are resources and hotlines and community that will help you and protect you because we don't shrug off, we can't shrug off abuse as if it is just not a thing. And so what are we to do with God's command to send Hagar back to her abusive home? And honestly, I'm not always sure. There is tension in these passages, but I think it's fair to admit that Hagar probably didn't have any resources like we have today. I mean, that, that is just true. She probably had nowhere else to go. And so perhaps God is making the best of a terrible situation as much as that might break our heart. Perhaps it is simply true that God works within the confines of the resources available. And sometimes I wonder if our option is to just sit in the tension of knowing that God is good even when we don't understand why terrible things happen as they do because they still happen today. So the next time we see Hagar is nearly 16 years later. Ishmael has grown into a young man. Sarah has her son, her finally has her son Isaac. And Abraham 
has grown to love Ishmael as his only son. And he, but Isaac throws this feast, Abraham throws this feast for Isaac. So many names, I keep getting lost. Abraham throws a feast for Isaac, who has stopped weaning, which, is, which was a sign that he was now strong enough to live on his own. And that was a momentous occasion at that time. But Sarah now knows that she has no need for Hagar and her son because Sarah has guaranteed her own place at Abraham's side with the inheritance of her own son. And that is what God promised. I mean, that the blessing would be for Abraham and Sarah, that the son would come through her own body. And this tug of war of what it means to be Abraham's child, to be the child of the promise, it runs throughout the whole Bible. It's this ongoing debate. It even appeared in our lyrics this morning. And even Jesus steps into the fray when he says to the religious leaders, God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he needed to. And he reminds us that true children of Abraham are people who love and follow God even at the cost of their own family and friends and comfort. That we, like Abraham, are called to forfeit our lives in order to follow Jesus into the world. And that is where we find our lives in Christ. But Sarah has decided she doesn't need Hagar. Now this time, Hagar is expelled from Abraham's house in the way that Abraham was expelled from Pharaoh's. And Hagar is given just enough provisions to get into the wilderness, but not through it. And so in a moment of crisis and despair, knowing that death is just on the other side of the hill, she sits Ishmael down so that she does not look, have to look on the son of her body, on the body of her son as he dies. And she sobs miserable groans of utter despair. And I wonder, does she remember the last time she was here? Does she remember that God had made a promise to her? And so the Bible tells us that God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. And other than a few references scattered around, Hagar and Ishmael walk off the pages of the Bible because she is not the chosen wife and he is not the promised son. But I've got to ask, why even include this story in the first place? An abused slave a discarded son, distrust, and rivalry, and jealousy. There's nothing pretty about it. And some Bible scholars and teachers point out to us that if we want to get to the story of the promised son Isaac born to Sarah, we don't have to go through the mess of Hagar and Ishmael. I mean, what is the point of all of this drama, all of this trauma? I mean, perhaps what we want to do is we want to preserve Abraham and Sarah as our heroes, and so we vilify Hagar, right? We need the classic formula of a villain and a victim and a hero and a quest. 
And Abraham is on the journey to get his promised son, and poor Sarah is barren, and haughty Hagar and disrespectful Ishmael get what they deserve. I mean, is that how we resolve this story? Sometimes we take this passage and we say that the whole point is that it's the consequences of trying to arrive at God's plan by our own means. And I get that. I do. There is a lot of truth to that, but I'm not totally sure that that truth is here in this story. Because we ought to observe that God did not specify until after Ishmael was born that the promised son would be Sarah's, would come from her own body. God left that little piece of information out. And so Sarah and Abraham did what was completely natural in that culture to do, and in fact, happened multiple times with their descendants. The entire reason we have the 12 tribes of Israel is because Jacob, aka Israel, had children from four women. It was a normal thing to do. And so do we moralize it as a that's what you get, as a way of sliding out and away from the tension of this passage? Are we just trying to get out from underneath it? Because the other truth, if I can be really honest with you, is I don't really personally relate to this passage. I'm not really sure that it does anything at me, does anything for me at face value. It is so unlike me, I don't know what to do with this story. But thanks be to God that the church and the kingdom of God is bigger and broader and wider than just my little story. I mean, it is big enough to include me and a whole bunch of people who are very, very different from me and from you. We need to hear the Hagar stories. And I think it would be interesting, thought experiment, if we had a time machine to go back just 200 years not all the way back to Sarah and Abraham, and that's, that's too far. 200 years, make our way down to Georgia and find ourselves on a Sunday morning in a little church tucked away along the cotton fields in the forest filled with enslaved people, slaves like Hagar. I wonder to myself, what would an enslaved black preacher do with Hagar's story on any given Sunday morning? Because honestly, I'll bet that would be a sermon worth listening to. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, for most of the folks listening, tucked into this hot human building, fanning themselves, because they didn't have AC, fanning themselves in their Sunday morning best. I mean, six days out of the week, the Bible and Christianity are used as a weapon against them. They are told that the Bible says, that Paul said that slaves should obey your master as unto Christ, and that's why you ought to, ought to submit. They were told, in fact, that the reason that they have this law in life is because they are the children of Ishmael, the son of the slave, and that their white masters are the children of the promised son, Isaac, that the very reason they are who they are, as they are, where they are, is because they are the children of Hagar. And I know from a distance it rightly offends us that Christians really believed things like that and oppressed people using the Bible. But could I ask you to just stay in the tension a little bit longer? Because I think if we were to go back 200 years to that little church, if we were to listen in on that Sunday morning, it would be a sermon worth, worth hearing what our enslaved brothers and sisters would hear. I imagine that as the preacher tells the story, he might say something, and when the Lord saw Hagar, found her in the wilderness, he said, Hagar, I see you. And the people 
would call back, I see you. And the preacher would say, and the Lord said, I hear your prayers. And the people would say, I hear you. And the Lord would say, and the preacher would keep going, the Lord said, I know what afflicts you. And the people and the preacher would be in this rhythm of I see you, I hear you, I know you, because that is the God that they trust and worship. That is their story, isn't it? I mean, they could relate to Hagar because they know this drama really well. And one of the incredible things to develop within the Christian spirituality of enslaved black peoples was this robust faith that knew the truth of the reality that was deeper and more true than their present circumstances. I mean, they knew that the God that they worshiped and served saw their mistreatment and heard their cries and knew their hearts. I mean, they knew that the same God who found Hagar in the wilderness was the same God who finds them. And they knew that God was on their side and that one day everything would be set right, that one day there would be no more pain and there would be no more separation from their children and every tear would be wiped and every head would be lifted and we would behold Jesus together because our God is a God who sees and a God who hears and a God who knows. And I bet that that preacher would make sure that every single person under the sound of his voice that morning knew that their God is El Roy, the God who sees them, because their story is a Hagar story, and their God is a God who sees. And that, I think, would be something worth hearing. But could I ask you, stay in the tension a little bit longer, because we don't have to go back 200 years. We could just turn and look around in the world. I know there's an organization called A21 that works tirelessly to rescue trafficked women and children from places of desperation. And I ask myself, I wonder, what prayers do these desperate women pray? If at all, do they know the God who found Hagar in the wilderness and who says, I see you? And I wonder, do they even believe that God would want to see them and have compassion? But the truth is those lives and those stories are so very different from my own. And it's honestly, it is a bit uncomfortable to grapple with. But we cannot ignore the Hagar stories, can we? We cannot ignore her story or smooth it over or polish it up into a morality play. I mean, can we really stand here Sunday morning and sing lyrics like, come thou fount of every blessing and he won't fail Ale, 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 ale. Or, <laughs> there you go, you're welcome, Jesse. Or can we sing, he is here. He is here to break the yoke and lift the heavy burden. He is here to heal the hopeless heart and, and bless the broken. Can we sing those songs and ignore the shameful injustice done to Hagar and to everyone like her? Because those songs don't only belong to us, do they? Because this story, it didn't have to be here. We could get to the promised son Isaac without going through Ishmael. But the Bible, for some really frustrating reason, doesn't disguise the brokenness of the people we call heroes. The Bible doesn't paint over the ugly bits. I mean, when they put these texts together thousands of years ago, they chose to leave these passages in. And stories like this in all of their beauty and all of their pain are for us mirrors. They show us who we are in Christ 
but who we also could be without God's grace. Because isn't it true that we too might just have the capacity for jealousy and using others like Sarah? That we might defend our turf, ensuring our future by breaking others? Can we admit that we might have the capacity like Abraham to acquiesce, to simply go along, to not care for and defend the helpless because it might cost us too much. And at times we might find ourselves like Hagar, hanging on by a thread to the very last bit of what we've got. But in the middle of all of this mess, God shows up. God still sees, God still hears, God still knows. God still sees all of our mess and says, look, I am making all things new. But I mean, I mean seriously though, I have enough of my own mess. I don't really need yours too. Plus, I, uh, I don't know what I have in common with you and I'm not quite sure what God's doing in that mess over there. Right? Don't we operate that way with each other sometimes? We are inclined to look past the Hagar, the other, the different, the uncomfortable, the needy people in our world, because surely God isn't doing anything there that I need to see, right? I mean, is it possible that what makes messy stories of Abraham's life, and there are so many messy stories, is it possible what makes these stories so uncomfortable for us to read is that we really are sure that he is the hero? I mean, he is the father of our faith. He does start the list to the cloud of witnesses. I mean, he starts the story in Hebrews 11. But the reality is, he's not the hero here. And neither is Sarah, and neither is Hagar, and neither is either of the two sons caught in up all, all up in this mess. And perhaps when we read the Bible, we forget that these stories aren't about us. I mean, they are great stories of men and women of faith who overcome, came great odds in all of their faults and triumphs and model some great things for us. But these stories are ultimately always about how God shows up in the middle of it all. God is the center of the story. Because without the God who sees, this is just a tragedy. Without the God who hears us, this is just misery. Without the God who knows us, this can't be anything but ugly. But when God shows up and when God steps in, that is a story worth hearing. And God showed up in Hagar's life in a way that no one would have expected. And God seeks out the abused and the unloved and the rejected and the despised. And he says, I see you. Because God is a God who loves the orphan and the widow and the outsider and the outcast and the foreigner living among us. God is on their side, rooting for them, working for them, and we should be too. Because there are people like Hagar, hurt and abused and rejected and overlooked and unloved, and they are all around us in our community and our schools. We pass them in the hallways and sit next to them at lunch. They're in our workplaces. They're at the cash register. And they're in our pews. And we must hear their stories. 
We must see their lives with compassion. We must know that they are God's beloved too. No matter how difficult or different their lives are from ours, would you stay in the tension a little bit longer? And maybe we might have our eyes opened up too, like Hagar who saw the well. We might just discover how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so may God give us eyes that see the unlikely recipients of grace in our community. May God give us ears that hear the cries of desperation and brokenness. And may we respond with the same love and compassion that is extended to us because we are reminded every Sunday morning when we celebrate together that Jesus loves us and calls us his own, that he found us while we were wandering in our own wilderness and he still finds us. And so as we prepare to receive the sacrament of communion together, would you stay in the tension a little bit longer? Where are the Hagar stories in your life? What is Jesus saying to you right now? What is the invitation or the challenge? And will you follow? As we prepare for communion, you can pass the elements down. The communion supper was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his suffering, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. This supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit. And the invitation is for all who believe and anyone who wants to. And as we come to the table, we come that we may be renewed in life and salvation and may be made one in the Spirit. And so it happened this way, that on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we gather at this table in the name of your son who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim released to the captives, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. And we live in the hope of his coming again. And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them by your power, by the power of your spirit to be for us the body 
and blood of Christ so that we may be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, Lord, make us one in Christ, one with each other, one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you to preserve you blameless into everlasting life. Would you take and eat this in remembrance and be grateful? This is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you to preserve you blameless into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. You've been listening to a podcast from College Church of the Nazarene, University Avenue. If you care to join us for worship, we meet each Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. at 200 University Avenue in Bourbonnais, Illinois. We also offer a full range of activities, classes, small group meetings, and events throughout the week. For a complete list of what's going on at College Church or for more information on how you can get involved, please go to www.collegechurch.org.